Great. Thank you, Matt. Well, please do take a seat, everyone. And do just grab the Bible again, which is probably sitting under your chair or somewhere you're sitting, and uh, turn back to that reading from Luke 3. Tonight's the second in our short series looking at these early chapters of Luke's Gospel and that theme through this series of um, seeing the coming King, seeing King Jesus as he comes. Um, Let's pray as we look at that and open it up together. As we've already prayed in our service, we pray, Lord, that you will speak and open our eyes and hearts. We don't want to be those that, um, for whom the, the words of God kind of go in the eye and straight out of our minds, or in one ear and out the other, uh, but where are the words that, through the power of the gospel, are renewing and life-changing and transforming that our lives may bear the fruit of your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was young, our family lived in Zambia, uh, in sort of central southern Africa, and uh, it was a great place for a young boy to grow up because um, every day when it wasn't school or after school, we could just kind of head out. Um, we lived in a, f- a fairly rural area, and we could just, just walk around the fields around us, and... Um, you know, fighting bushfires with the locals and chasing snakes and dodging scorpions. Great place for a boy to grow up. Um, I remember, though, um, on more than one occasion, a friend and I would wander into some of the maize fields around us where you know, the, the corn was growing. And uh, it, it was just too tempting sometimes, um, when no one was looking, just to kind of pick a bit of the sweet corn. Um, and, and start kind of munching it because it was just kind of there and it seemed, as a, a young boy, it seemed like it was free and just for us to take and eat. Um, so, you know, looking back, I'm not too proud of, of what was basically theft and I'm kind of making a public confession tonight of that sin and that crime, aren't I? I mean, in a sense, I carry the guilt for that and actually for, for you know, much more significant sins um, over the years that followed until I came actually to this church and heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he came um, for people just like me and just like all of us to die and to rise again to bring us home to God forgiven. Luke's writing this gospel um, to persuade us of two things, essentially. One is that all of us, uh, and if we're honest with ourselves and with God, we're all like I am, like I was. We're all sinners who've walked away from God's ways, who've disregarded his perfect will for our lives. We call that sin and gone our own way. But secondly, um, the other part of the message of Luke, the good news, is that God has sent a saviour that that is not the end of the story. There is a way home. There is a way for us to be forgiven and to find God as our Father, Christ as our Saviour, the Spirit as our empowerer day by day. Now, we, look, we know from the, the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, um, you know, do just flick back to it, Luke 1, that Luke is writing this, as he says, that he's undertaking verse 1 of chapter 1, um, to draw up an orderly account of the things that have taken place among us. He's talking here about the birth, as we've seen at Christmas, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what his 24 chapters of his gospel are all about. And he says, I've, I've researched this carefully. It's a historical account. We can trust Luke the doctor with what we're reading tonight. He's not making this up. He's also, Luke, writing um, to defend the gospel. It may be that Theophilus is quite a significant figure um, in the kind of Roman court, the, the, the government of the empire, and he's writing 
as it were, to, to the powers that be to say, lay off blaming Christians for all the trouble in the empire. We're the good news. We're people who are drawing our faith from the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the promises about the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the answer, and he calls us to lives of good works and not to kind of unrest and riot. So don't blame us when those things do happen. And those are his kind of agendas in writing. Christianity is an ancient, biblical, life-transforming and healthy thing to have in your culture. We saw over Christmas, if you were here, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, that a number of different people sing songs about how Jesus really is the saviour that was promised, the fulfilment of scripture, the one to bring us back to God. And two babies were born in those chapters. Do you remember that? Yes, of course, there was Jesus, God's son born of Mary, but there's also John, called John the Baptist when he grew up, who's really the central character of the first half of chapter 3 as well. He's not just a kind of bit player in the Gospels. He's a very significant figure. I think as we said at the time, you can't understand John the Baptist and why he came if you don't understand Jesus, because he's all about Jesus, pointing to Jesus. But actually, the reverse is also true. You can't understand Jesus fully without understanding John the Baptist. Why else does Luke give him such a big chunk of the gospel? Because John, as he says, is preparing us to see Jesus. It's almost like he's kind of you know, demisting your windscreen before you drive off in the morning on these cold mornings. You can't safely see Jesus unless you've understood John first. He's preparing us. We saw that last time, didn't we? Uh, that John sets the stage in those first verses of chapter 3. If you're back in chapter 3 now, um, he appears, doesn't he, proclaiming, preaching about Jesus. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah, that um, that section at the top right-hand corner there of our pages, a voice of one calling the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And we saw last time that John is helping us to do that. He's saying, get your hearts ready. Fill in the valleys, pull down the mountains. A flat road because the king is coming. That's Jesus. And we saw last time that the way that we do that is not physically by you know, getting out an excavator and flattening things, but by internally... Preparing our hearts. The word there was repent, repentance. John brought with, with the water he dunked people in in the river a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as we saw last week, repentance is a change of mind leading to a radical change of direction. And John, therefore, is critical. We've got to listen to John. He's saying, um, you can't follow Jesus if you haven't first begun to make a radical change of mind leading to a radical change of direction. You need repentance if you're going to find the saviour. And what John does in our passage tonight is he really asks two questions to dig into that for us, to show us, well, what is repentance, John? That's really the the first thing. What's the fruit of of life he's looking for? Um, And secondly... Um, who is the king, who is the saviour. But here's the first one. Really his question is this, what fruit is your life producing? And he doesn't mean oranges and apples. What fruit is your life producing? That's really verses 7 to 14. 
Luke began this chapter with a whole list of politicians' names. I don't know if you saw them there. We had fun reading them last week. Tiberius, the emperor. Pontius Pilate. Herod, tetrarch of, 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 of Galilee. Um, all of those names are there. Those politicians are there to say, along with all these big people, emperors and tetrarchs and things, there are two men who history hardly noticed at the time, but are much more important than they are. Just two men, Jesus and John. They're the ones you need to focus on. And John, as we saw last time, came effectively as a prophet, a messenger from God, after 400 years of silence to prepare the way for Jesus. And Luke is saying here, God is doing something special. Under all the politics of history, these two men are the ones you need to listen to. First John, and then Jesus. And John's preaching is good news. It is good news. We saw that in our reading, verse 18, with many other words, John exhorted or challenged people and proclaimed the good news to them. So even this language about repentance, and as you'll see, the very challenging words of John, it's still good news, still for our good, still something we need and want to hear because it's through this that repentance leading to forgiveness of sins is possible. So, John says, doesn't he? John says, repent. Repent. Turn back to God. A radical change of mind leading to a radical change of direction. And in verse 7, he begins to tell us what he means by that. Um, But if you look at verse 7 now, the start of our reading, it's hardly a very crowd-pleasing speech, is it? John said to the crowds coming out to him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You brood of vipers. You know, imagine David Davis going to the next round of Brexit talks and walking to the room with all these European leaders and starting with those words. He's hardly going to endear himself, is he, to those negotiating with him. Um, no wonder if, you know, if that's John's message to these, these are the religious leaders coming out to him, remember. Amongst the crowd are some very sincere religious people. No wonder John, as we saw at the end of our reading, made himself unpopular with the powers that be. King Herod, uh, the local ruler, got so angry with John when he was challenged by John for basically his marital, extramarital affairs and remarriages that Herod slapped him in prison, later executed him. John's very brave in his message here. You brood of vipers, who warned you? But, but John is trying to enable the crowd to hear the real challenge of repentance to a radical change of direction. It's much more, he says, than just coming and letting me, however humbling you may feel it is, baptize you in the water. It's much more than that. Repentance is not just a a brief religious action and then it's done. It's a whole life with a changed direction. That's the point here, isn't it? It's a great reminder, really important reminder. If if we've been used to to wanting to please others by living the best life we can, doing our best, as it were, by being essentially respectable people, many of us here are probably brought up that way still, or even if we've been taught that being religious is the thing that matters to keep God happy, to please him, 
If we think that you know, even a simpler thing as coming to church on a Sunday, that's, that's somehow part of what really matters to pleasing God. And then we've ticked the box. Or even say a confession, as we did in our service, however valuable that is. If we think, that's done it, I've repented. John's very clear, isn't he? A simple, brief, religious moment like that is not true repentance. It might be a step towards it, but it's not repentance. And it's almost as if he's reading their minds here, because he kind of imagines them saying, oh, you know, it's okay, um, just, just do the baptism thing for now. We'll repent later, um, when it gets really tricky. Um, he says, doesn't he, um, in verse 8, from these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. They're saying, oh, you know, we are, we're good Jewish people. We're born of Abraham. We've got good religious blood in us. We've got all the right, you know, God loves us. He says, no, no, God doesn't need you. He didn't choose you because he needed you, because he loves you. Yes, he doesn't need you. If, if you're not going to change your hearts, well, he'll find people that will do elsewhere. Even stones can be raised up to be his children. And if you think you'll do it later, verse 9, well, the axe is at the root of the tree now. God may not give you tomorrow to put your life right. The axe is at the foot of the tree now, he says, and every tree that does not bear good fruit, that's the question, isn't it? Good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. They're fierce words, aren't they? Powerful words. And I hope, you know, like me, you're sensing the challenge in those. Um, I can't just perform an action and think that's repentance. Um, I can't think, well, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a good church member. I've been here for you know, 12 months or 25 years. That's not repentance. And I can't think, oh, I'll sort this out when I've, I've, I'm less busy at work or I've sorted out my, my kids and my parenting. The axe is, he says, at the foot of the tree now. Now's the time. Now, it's really important that we get this clear here. John does not mean that if we repent and start doing good works, you know, giving to charity, forgiving the people we find difficult, being more patient with the things that we find difficult, that suddenly God will love us and save us because of what we do. To be really clear, we are not saved. Nothing in Luke's gospel tells us we're saved by the good things we do. But it does mean that once we've found the Saviour, a life of repentance, of, of a God-directed life, a radically changed direction of life, is the fruit that goes in, in touch with a saved life. The fruit's not the reason I'm forgiven, but it is, if you like, the evidence, the sign of a changed life. And it's a sign that John says God looks for. Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. Story about a man who was shouting up at God one day, you know, if you're up there, tell me what to do with my life. And the answer came back, okay, clothe the poor. Feed the hungry, work for justice. Love those that you find difficult. Well, the man had rather hoped for something a bit easier than all that stuff. So he shouted back, it's okay, I was just testing. To which God, of course, then replied, yeah, so was I. God looks at our lives um, 
not in the hope he sees enough goodness there that he can then forgive us and love us, but he looks at the lives of those that claim to be his followers for fruit that's in keeping with repentance. So that is the first question, isn't it? It's a very simple one, but actually it's one that I suspect if we're hearing God speaking tonight, each needs to go away and reflect quite carefully on. What fruit is your life and my life producing? It's the question the crowd asks, actually, in verse 10, isn't it? So what should we do? You know, describe it for us. Maybe they think it's too easy. Give us a kind of five quick things and we'll do them. It's not as simple as that. But John does give some examples. He tells the ordinary people to be generous. If you've got two shirts, give to those that have none. He tells dishonest tax collectors to be fair in what they tax from now on. And he tells very powerful soldiers tempted to oppress that the poor people around them to be gentle instead with people and be happy with what they have. And he asked us today, I think, to unpack that for ourselves, knowing what our own weaknesses and sins are. Where are the changes of mind and direction I need to make? Is it about loving those I find difficult? Is it about being patient? Is it about letting go of bitterness and and forgiving people? Good works in keeping with repentance. Good fruit. So, doing good works will not save you or me. That's not the Christian message. Only Jesus and his perfect life and his death can do that. But they are the, um, the logical, necessary, evident outcome of a life Jesus has begun to renew. A sign that your heart and mine is changing towards new life and salvation. So that's the first question for us to ponder, I think, and pray about what fruit is your life producing in keeping with repentance that leads to faith and salvation. Secondly, from verse 15, John then, because of another question he's asked, asks us this one. Which leader are you following? What fruit are you producing? Which leader are you following? Because here is John. He is a very compelling preacher. A tremendous prophet. The crowds came to him to be baptized, dressed like an Old Testament prophet, baptizing people of repentance, speaking of the coming kingdom. No wonder people began to think to themselves, it says in verse 15, they began to quietly say to themselves, could this be the one? Could he be the Messiah? Is he the saviour? It's a very natural question when you look at John the Baptist, what a compelling character he is. He's a remarkable prophet of God. But John replies, and if you read any of the Gospels, he is always absolutely clear with this. No hesitation. No, I'm not the one. That's not me. That's not my role. I've come to prepare the way, but I'm not the way. One stronger is coming, he says, Then a slightly strange phrase, you see that, if you look at um, verse 16. One whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to untie. One greatest coming, one better, one more powerful, one who can do the things that I can't do for you. I can get you wet, 
but I can't save you. You need Jesus for that. But what's the thing about the sandal straps? Very strange phrase. Well, there was an Old Testament custom that when a man died, his brother was expected to marry the widow to continue the the family line in that way. If he, perhaps because of selfish reasons, did not want to do that, to take on the, the economic burden of that, then she would publicly shame him. There'd be a public meeting, and she would say, my husband died, his brother won't take me on as his wife. And you know what she then did? She went over, she undid his sandal, took it off, and threw it down in front of everyone as a kind of witness that he wasn't going to be her husband. And he was letting um, the family down in that way. And the family was from that day called, that man's family was called, the house of the unsandaled. It's great. It's in the Bible. It's right there in Deuteronomy 25. You can check it up later. The wearer of the sandal, you see, is the one that's going to marry the bride. So when John says here, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, it's probably John saying, I am just the best man. He's the bridegroom. He gets the bride. If you know the Bible at all, you'll know that in the Bible, the bride is God's people. Jesus is coming as saviour. He says, he's greater than me. I'm just the bridegroom. I'm just kind of pointing you to him. But he is the one to love and redeem and take to himself his people. In our language today, we'd probably say, you know, I'm just the ball boy. He's the manager. Or I'm just Robin. And he's Batman. Who are you following, John's saying? Please don't follow me. Isn't that a wonderful thing for him to say? Please don't follow me. I cannot save you. But one is coming who will. He then goes on, doesn't he, to explain what he means. I baptize with water. I can get you wet. I can give you an outward sign. But he will baptize with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and with fire. He's got a greater baptism than I can give you. The one that we've all waited for. Now, the language of Holy Spirit and fire is interesting. It could be a promise of of what we call Pentecost, um, of of Jesus will fill the church with his presence, his life, his power, the Holy Spirit. But actually, because of what uh, John then says straight after, the next verse, where he talks about Jesus coming um, to judge evil with fire, to bring his winnowing fork... The image of fire and holiness here, it's almost certainly, John is saying, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, that he will come and he'll call his people to himself to be his holy people, purified through his death for us, and he will separate out and judge evil. It's the fire of judgment here in John's mind. John's saying, isn't he, yes, I can wash your skin, but he can wash your heart. I can talk about God's judgment. He's actually going to perform it. I can talk about making you pure. He is going to purify you. If you want to produce good fruit, in other words, and I hope after John's first point, you and I do, you're going to need his help to do it. You cannot do it without him. John's message of repentance is described as good news. Verse 18 
it is a good reminder that even this very challenging message that you and I are far from God and need a saviour, that you and I, our hearts are in the wrong direction and need to turn round, and only Jesus can help us to do that and save us. All of that is good news. Even what feels like the bad news is good news, because it is not bad news, but good news that God judges evil, that God judges sin. God is pure and holy, and is going to put things right. And of course, the other bit of the good news is that Um, where you and I are not right, he has also sent a saviour. So for those that turn back in heart, there's a way home, there's a rescue, there's a purifying, there is salvation. So who are you following? That's John's question. It's no good thinking that even repentance is going to be enough to save you. You still need a saviour. A change of heart is not going to be a change of life without Jesus. One greater and stronger is coming. The bridegroom's on the way and I'm just getting you ready for him, says John. Again, it's a really helpful message, isn't it? Because in his day and our day, you you could follow a politician, you could follow a great preacher like John and idolise him. You and I might well have been tempted to do that with John. In our own day, you, you you could follow a a rock star, a celebrity, a social media queen. John says, none of those, not one, can save you like Jesus alone can. None is the real thing. Only he can purify our hearts. Only he can bring you back to God. Only he can enable you to produce good fruit. He's the saviour. We are, all of us, driven, tempted to follow someone or something. And it's something in the way human beings are wired. We need something to desire, to give ourselves to, to follow. And it may not be Jesus. Often it isn't. Just imagine how easily some of us are brought up to desire to please our parents, for instance. And the jobs that we do, the people we spend time with, even the clothes we wear, are all about what would mum or dad think. It's a very powerful thing. Or someone else maybe who is led not so much by what the parents think, but but what my peers think. Trying to keep up with the salaries and the lifestyles of the people I was at college with. And now perhaps earning much more than I am. Or the desire to, I don't know, to hang on to a boyfriend or girlfriend by doing, being the kind of person that we think they want us to be or to do. And John says, don't follow another human being. Yes, love, serve, honour, but don't follow another human being. Don't even follow me, says John. Follow Jesus. Make his desire his love, his service, his perfecting of you, your goal. So as I begin to wrap up, if you're here tonight and you're exploring some of this, what really is is in this stuff about God and about Jesus and life, if you'd love to know why Jesus is such good news, well, 
do pick up one of the Gospels. We've got some of these copies of John's Gospel there on the resources table in, in the meeting place there. Just grab one over coffee. Um, just take it. It's, it's with our compliments. Come on to the Discover course I mentioned earlier. Because we all need to find, don't we, a way through life, a way to live the sort of life we're called to live. We all need to find a way to, to have a change of direction that's not just a, a new resolution broken in a few weeks a turning of a new leaf that again becomes an old leaf again, but a new heart, and only Jesus can do that. And if you're here tonight as a follower of Jesus, and, and you, like I have done, have made some foolish choices and done some foolish things in your life, but you want to follow Jesus, you want to come back and have a new start, whether or not you said that confession with us earlier, God is always, at any moment, ready to forgive us, to receive us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to renew our hearts the moment we come back in repentance to him. There's no more important pair of questions, I don't think, that any human being can ask than those two. Um, What does a good life look like? How do I produce good fruit? What fruit am I producing? And who am I following? Who's my saviour? So if you're here and you've got people you're praying for maybe, as we thought about the events week earlier for the, the students here, but we've all got family, work colleagues, people at school that don't yet know about this saviour. As we pray for them, let's pray that, that those two questions will begin to surface in their hearts and their consciousness. And let's pray for opportunity to explore them with them, and to point them to the Saviour. Let's pray. Just a moment of quiet, just for us to perhaps to begin to reflect what are the fruit that my life is at present producing. It might be fruit that we recognise as the work of God and are grateful for. It might be fruit that we're ashamed of and want to confess and repent of. Lord, we've heard some very challenging words from your servant John tonight. We pray again as we began by praying that we won't have hearts of of Teflon, as it were, that these challenges just bounce off, that don't stick. May we take to heart your word to us. um, And by the power of your gospel, by the love of Christ, redeemer, risen and reigning, one day returning, May your word bear fruit in lives that are for your honor and glory and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.